for our midweek Bible study, and that's what we're going to do right now. So open your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 42, and again, stake and study, guys, I just can't emphasize or uh, that enough. Um, I was uh, at the trap and skeet range with, with Justin uh, Tuesday, and just had a great time shooting traps, and and you know what that is. You guys understand what that is. But we had a, we had just a good time. He's a good old boy from Mississippi. He said he was born with a shotgun in one hand and a, a fishing pole in the other. And uh, neat brother um, speaks about six languages. Uh, teaches Greek and Hebrew in college. He's a has a PhD and and uh, just a, a real wonderful man. But just down to earth, humble as can be. So you won't want to miss that this uh, Friday night. Well, we've been studying the life of Joseph for the past few weeks. Last week we had this Wednesday off because of VBS, and they had a great time as well in the the building. But we're studying the life of Joseph, and each one of these chapters contains a different, kind of a different picture of this man. He's he's just such a great study, Joseph. He's a man of, of integrity, as it says here on my opening slide, integrity and faithfulness, forgiveness, I should say. And tonight we're going to see that. He, we're going to see him uh, in this role of, of confronting uh, his brothers. But really the, the, the emphasis tonight really isn't on him, it's really on his brothers. And God is working in their life because God is, is going to, through these 12 boys of Jacob, as deceitful and wicked and corrupt as they are, God's gonna, he's got to change them. You see, they've been living in Canaan, and God's going to get them out of Canaan and down to Egypt. And how he does that is he causes this sovereignly this worldwide famine. He's going to get them down to Egypt because he wants to humble them. Right now, they're corrupt and nasty and gnarly guys, all of them, except for Benjamin. He's, he will find he's at home, and then Joseph. And so this real, these, real, these chapters are really about um, uh, Joseph and how he... Um, uh, his character just emerges, and that's what I really love about studying uh, this guy. The, the chapter that we studied two weeks ago, chapter 41, ended with uh, the birth of Joseph's sons. You'll remember Joseph was uh, sold. He was in a, thrown in a pit, sold into Egypt, uh, to G- Egyptian uh, traders, slave traders, and down to Egypt he went. He ended up being a servant in a home, elevated to uh, run the everything, run in the household. He was falsely accused, thrown in a pit, put in a prison. Um, his life has been one tragedy after the other. If you really study his life and you wonder, how does this man, with so many difficulties and troubles and trials, how does he emerge with such character? And I would say it's because of all the trials and all the difficulties that he's endured. That's really what we're learning here, that, that God is through pain and suffering and struggles. And you'll see this theme all throughout the New Testament. Paul is the greatest example of that, right? Paul suffered and suffered and suffered for righteousness and for truth. And he stood, he, he was beaten to the point of death. He was thrown out of city after city. He was cursed at and whipped and beaten and bit by a snake and almost drowned a couple of times and shipwrecked and all. And through all those trials, God was doing a work to humble this very proud Jewish man and make him uh, the Apostle Paul that we all know and love. He wrote much of the New Testament. But it's through trials and suffering and all these things in Joseph's life uh, that 
we come to this place in his life now that he is the second most powerful man under Pharaoh. He has got all the power in the nation to do whatever he wants because you'll recall after he was released from two years of prison, he interpreted the dream that Pharaoh had. No one else could interpret it. He interpreted the dream. Not only did he interpret the dream, but boldly said, now this is, uh, Pharaoh, can I tell you the strategy here? Well, let me tell you what you need to do, Pharaoh. And so he lays out the strategy, as you recall. Very, very confident, very bold because of all that he's gone through. He's been able to administer in Potiphar's house. He's, God's led him in all these places, and he's excelled in every one of the situations. And so now he's elevated to this place of leadership in Egypt when there's this worldwide famine. So let's pick it up here in verse 56 of the previous chapter. Notice the famine was over the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So countries, surrounding countries, came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all the lands. And so God is doing a sovereign work. He's dried up the lands. The rain isn't falling. The animals have died. There's no grain. There's nothing to eat. People are starving, and they're coming now to Joseph. This is all part of God's wonderful, wonderful plan. And it's in this, this state where Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt, and they have to deal with something. They've got to deal with their guilty conscience. And that really, that's, that's the topic of this study. That's why I've entitled it The Power of a Guilty Conscience. God gives us conscience. We'll talk about that as we get into the study. So let me pray, and then we'll read uh, this first portion of chapter 42. Father, we come to your word tonight. We ask your blessing on it. We see it as truth. These aren't just stories, Lord. This historical narrative that we're reading tonight, Lord, there are things here to apply to our lives. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal to each believer its truth and that you would encourage Encourage those that have maybe a, a conscience that's, that's off because it hasn't been programmed by your word. Encourage those that, that th their conscience is going off because they are guilty. Encourage us tonight to know what to do through looking at this story of Joseph and his brothers. We pray in Jesus. Amen. Now, it's been 22 years, by the way. It's been 22 years that these brothers have lived comfortably in Canaan. They're rich. Remember, their dad's very, very wealthy, and so they're rich kids. They've had everything they need, but now it's famine. They have nothing. They've lost all their, their food and all their, their herds. They, they have to go to Egypt now to get food. But, but these guys, let me just emphasize this before we read this first, first verse. They're, they're corrupt morally. These guys are immoral to the core. We've already seen that in the previous chapter, chapter 34. It was Simeon and Levi that tricked the men of Shechem because of the, uh, the rape of their sister Dinah. And they, they trick them into being circumcised, and then they kill them. They kill all the men in the city. They steal the women and the children. They take all the, the stuff from the city. I mean, they're corrupt people. And then Reuben, the oldest, he sleeps with his father's concubine. Judah had two sons. They're so wicked. Chapter 38, verse 7, God kills them. He just kills them. He doesn't even let them live. They're so wicked. These, these men and their families 
all of the brothers except for Benjamin sold Joseph into slavery. I mean, this family, these kids, they are they're bad to the bone. I mean, they're to the core. And so 22 years later, there's this worldwide famine. They're facing starvation. And it's Jacob, in the beginning of the story, who sends his 10 sons, minus Benjamin. He won't let Benjamin go to buy grain. And my first point here in the first seven verses is the family reunion. Notice in verse 1, when Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you guys look at each other? I love that. Just think of that. When you read the Bible, it's so much fun. Listen to what he's saying. Why do you guys, what are you standing around for? And he said, indeed, I've heard there's, there's grain, there's food in Egypt. Go down and to that place and buy it for us there that we might live. We're dying here. What are you guys thinking? I love this, the wisdom. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. Now, when I read that, the other day I read that, and then this morning I'm studying it, why do you think he said that? Could it be that he believes his other ten sons are so corrupt and they've proven to be corrupt that he doesn't want this son that he really loves, Benjamin, to be corrupted by these other ten? Could it be? I, I, I'm thinking that when I read this. Lest some calamity befall him too with you clowns. And then the sons of Israel, verse 5, went to buy grain among those who sojourned. So there's a lot of people coming to Egypt. They all want to buy grain. For the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph, verse 6, was governor over the land. And it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Now the first thing that we need to recognize is the famine is a result of God's sovereignty. It's not just some natural disaster. This is God working to get this family to go to, to, down to Egypt. This is his way to get them down there. Again, when you see the story, you see God's hand working in it. He's got to get his people out of Canaan. It's, it's an idolatrous place, and it's corrupted these boys. So he's got to get them out of there, and he's got to humble his people. And this is exactly what he prophesied to Abraham. Now, I want to show you this verse. This all ties together by the way, but notice this verse behind me on the screen. It's Genesis 15, verse 13. Then he said to Abram, Now cert know this, certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs and will serve them, and, and the Egyptians are going to afflict them. Notice how long. See that? This is all a result. What's happening now in chapter 42 is all a result of this prophecy that God told Abram. Abram had no clue. So why is it in there? It's for you and me. So you and I can see that God is at work here. Again, I love to think of the sovereignty of God. I, I can't comprehend how great he is, and I, I see my problems so big. But then when I think about how sovereign God is in his plan, it, it, there's nothing too hard for the Lord. His arm can reach and touch. He, he can move mountains. He can do whatever he wants. All we do is we just need to submit to him and his authority. So this, uh, this famine and this chapter 42 is really a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, this plan of God's. And again, this chapter begins back in Canaan, where there's this famine and the brothers, their father, I love it, you know, they're looking at their dad, they're all standing around like, well, what do we do now? We don't have any more food. And, and Jacob's like, well, don't just stand there, go down to Egypt and get it. You've heard this, so don't, don't wait, let's go down there and, and get it. 
And so when the brothers get down there to buy grain from Joseph, who, think about Joseph, by the way, he's been there for over 20 years. He was 17 when he was sold into slavery. 13 years later, he's age 30, back in chapter 41. He's, he's 30 years old when he comes to the power. There's been seven more years of famine, so 37, maybe a couple more years. This, he's, he's an older man. You know, when you're 17, you look a little different than when you're 40, wouldn't you say? Not only that, but he's been given a different name. He's been immersed in the Egyptian culture. So unlike the Jews who always sh- um, grew their beards, he's got a shaved face. Remember we talked about that? He's wearing Egyptian clothes. Maybe he's got one of those big funny hats, you know, they wear. When you think of pharaohs and, and the uh, sarcophaguses, you know, and you see the funky-looking Egyptian guys. We were, when we were at the um, uh, museum in uh, Jerusalem, you see some sarcophaguses. Uh, hard to say that word, but um, they're really cool. And if you've ever seen King Tut or if you've ever looked at things on the Internet, you know, those guys, they're always clean-shaven, and, and so you've got to picture him that way. He doesn't look like his brothers. He's older. He's wearing the clothes. He's even speaking their language. He has a different name. So all this time, they don't know who he is. They, they, all they know is that he's the official they have to buy from. They don't recognize who he is because he looks different, talks different, shaves. He's, he looks totally like an Egyptian here. The first thing they do, without even knowing, they're fulfilling their little brother's prophecy. They do the first, the first thing they do is they bow down. They walk up to him and they, they bow down. They're fulfilling the prophecy. Remember young Joseph, he runs to his brothers and says, Hey, I had a dream last night and, and I was like this sheaf and I stood up and you guys all bowed down before me. And the older brothers are going like, really? I mean, they couldn't stand it. Here's the verse, Genesis 37, verse 7. There were... There we were, binding sheaves. Joseph's telling the story to his brothers. Then behold, my sheaf arose, stood upright, and indeed your sheaf stood all around and bowed down to mine. So again, this is this dream. And this caused, they just wanted to kill him because he was claiming the birthright then. They knew it. They, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to get rid of him. And secondly, they, when they sold him into slavery, they thought, now we don't have to hear that dream anymore. You just wonder how many times, hey, guys, remember the dream I told you about last week, last month, last year? And they're, they're done with that. They don't want to hear it anymore. So they think they're through with him. He's, he's gone. He's out of the country. They don't ever have to hear that, that dream again. Again, this is God's plan. It's a different plan than theirs. They planned evil to him, but God has a different plan in his life, and he's revealing that. Again, in verse 6 here, we learn that Joseph's brothers came down and they bowed down before him. And notice, with their faces to the earth, they're showing great homage to the second most powerful man in the world under Pharaoh is their brother Joseph, who they don't even recognize. But Joseph, notice, verse 7, he knows exactly who they are when he sees them. Joseph saw his brothers, verse 7, and recognized them, but he acted like a stranger to them, and he spoke harshly. And he's using Egyptian. He's not speaking their language. He's using Egyptian. He's speaking harshly. So you can just, you have to picture him there. He sees them come in, and he, those are my brothers. And so he immediately takes on this, this, you know, his frown on his face, and he maybe sticks his finger out, and he says, 
what are you doing here? You're spies. I know it. You're spies. So he, teach, he treats them very harshly. That's what the scripture says here. Then he said to them, what, uh, where do you come from? And they said, we, we come from Canaan. We, we, we just came here to buy food. So through an interpreter, he's speaking because he doesn't want to reveal who he is. The interpreter says it, you know, and he's just looking at him and growling at him like he's treating him harshly for a purpose. There's a purpose for that. Some reunion, you say. You know, you, you look at this story. Joseph's brothers don't know who he is because of all the years that have gone by. So Joseph's gracious confrontation, I love this, verse 8. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamt about them. He remembers that. Why? Because they just bowed down before him. And in his mind, it's like, you know, God is, is working now. He's working in Joseph's life. He's going to lead Joseph in this whole story here because God's got a purpose for everything that happens here. I love what he says. He said to them, you're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. You came to see if, if we were poor like you. You, you came to see if, if we were in famine like you so that you could come in and steal our power. That's why you're here. You're spies. So he, he accuses them right away. And I love the fact that, that um, Joseph, he's, I think, at the same time as he remembers the dream and it came from God, he's realizing that God is in control, he, that God is speaking to him. And right at that very moment, this God has put me in this place. God has given me this power. God has given me this authority over my brothers. He's realizing all this stuff. It just comes to him, I, I, I believe. But instead of revealing who he is, he accuses them of spies. So the question is why? Why, why would he do that? Because Everybody knew if you were a spy, you know, off with your head. So they are immediately threatened. They're thinking, we just came to get food. We're not spies. He's looking at them like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you to prison. I'm going to kill you. I mean, that's, that's the story here. And he is really rough with them. And what that does is it produces fear in these 10 brothers. They're afraid. And so when they're afraid, they're going to start revealing things. You know, if you're threatened by something, the first thing you want to do is, oh, I didn't do that. I, I just came to, you know, to eat here. I, I, you know, some guy comes into a bank, you know, to rob it. I just came to deposit money. It's not me. And so his rough treatment of them and his questioning and then accusing them of being spies gets them to reveal the things that he wants to know. He wants to know, is his father still alive? He wants to know if, if Benjamin is still alive. Why isn't Benjamin here? I see 10. Where's Benjamin. So he's getting them to reveal without saying, hey, guys, what's going on back at home? And he doesn't want to reveal any of that. You're spies. No, you're spies. We just came to get food. You are a spy. And they started revealing all these things. They had nothing else. They're desperate here. And they're being charged by something. Look at verse 10. And they said, no, my Lord, but your servants were servants. We've come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. So here they are. He's getting this information. We're honest men. Hmm. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, no, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. He accuses them again. And they said, your servants are, are 12. There's 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today. So there it is. Benjamin's alive. His father, Jacob, is alive. And then notice what they say. 
and one is no more. Isn't that interesting? One of us died. That's, that's what they're saying there. So they tell Joseph, on one hand, we're honest. We're, we're, we're sons of a man, but then they lie. One is no more. You see what they've done here? They're still, God's got to teach them and do all these things. They've been deceptive. They deceived the Shechemites, killing them. They deceived their own father, lying to them with a bloody coat, his special coat, showing him he must have died by some wild beast. And now they lie to Joseph, saying their brother is no more. Even though the last time they saw him, they were like waving by as he went in the cage, you know, with the slave traders to Egypt. They knew he was alive. Now, in verses 14 through 19, Joseph tests his brothers. I love this test. Verse 14. But Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you, saying, you are spies. Remember, he's treating them harshly throughout this. In this manner, you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Now, this is an interesting test that he gives them. And he's going to basically give them three days in prison to think about it all. If they're really honest, they'll come and they'll speak the truth. They're going to be thrown into a dungeon. And, and uh, if they're really honest, they'll do what he says. They'll leave, somebody will stay, and they'll, other ones will go home, and they'll get their little brother and bring him back, if they're honest. That's, so that's, that's the test here. So verse 16, send one of you and let him bring your brother, and you shall be kept in prison, that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you. Why would he say that? Because there isn't any truth he knows, a lie. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison, three days. Then Joseph said, verse 18, on the third day, I I love what he says here, notice, do this and live. I'm going to give you instructions, and if you'll obey it, you'll live. And then he says this, I fear God. He doesn't say Baal. He doesn't say the the Egyptian moon goddess. I fear God. That's a really important statement there. They don't get it right away, but they'll get it soon. The three days in prison. How would you feel? You know, it's like we've been falsely accused. He thinks we're spies. What do we? It's your fault. And, and then it's, no, it's your fault. You wanted to kill Joseph, and we sent him to Egypt. And they're starting to think, they're starting to get guilty here. That's, that's the point. Three days in prison made them think about their lives. Three days in prison made them think about what they had done, all of these things. And if they're honest, now they're going to fess up to uh, Joseph, their brother, that they don't know. Is he's still incognito here as they relate to him. And they'll return with their little brother if they're honest. So send one of them and let him bring your brother. And you'll be kept in prison so your words can be tested. Again, I believe that God is awakening their guilty conscience. God has given us a conscience. This is kind of important to understand. But notice in Numbers 32, you've probably seen this verse or you know this verse. Be sure and know your sin will what? We all know that, don't we? The Word of God is very, very um, accurate when it comes to the heart of man. Number one, it's wicked. We're sinners to the core. But God has given us, this really is a blessing, a conscience. 
and the conscience, if it's programmed correctly with truth and with God's word, will keep the Christian from sinning. As we memorize scripture, as we put God's word first, as we, as we immerse ourselves in the truth of God, it's our conscience that will help us. You know, it's like you go down the aisle of the grocery store and you're really thirsty and there's that you know, bottle of water there, and nobody's looking. It's late at night, and either you open it, you know, and we used to call, I used to work in the grocery store, and we'd find open bottles and cans, you know, partial bunches of grapes on the, you know, on the haba aisles. People, we call them grazers. People go through the grocery store, pick up, they graze, you know, and they leave it there. They don't pay for it, you know, and, and, and you Will you be honest? Will your conscience go off when you have an opportunity to take something that's not yours? Your conscience says, no, no, that's wrong. Shouldn't do it. If you haven't been programmed, your conscience has never been programmed, then it's like whatever. You're, you're, you'll just take whatever. You'll do whatever. There's a lot of people in the government that do whatever, that have no conscience at all. They're the ones that really need to be reprogrammed. But but you need to understand that God's given you a conscience. And there are many examples in the Bible. Real quickly, there, there's defiled conscience and seared consciousness. Let me just show you a verse, 1 Timothy 4. Now, the Spirit expressly says, Paul writes to Timothy, that the, in latter times some will depart from the faith. This kind of goes with our study on Sunday. Giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demon, demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy. Notice this, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. In other words, they can't tell right from wrong. They just do wrong. They lie. They steal. They could care less. I could give you a lot of examples of that, but the Bible, the Bible clearly teaches that the conscience can be seared or defiled. The Bible also speaks of a pure conscience, a good conscience. Paul in Acts 24 says this. Here's another verse, Acts 24, verse 16. This being so, I myself always strive to have, notice, a conscience without offense toward God and men. This was Paul's goal. He didn't want to offend anybody. He wanted to be very careful about what he said. He wanted to have a clear conscience when he stood and preached. When he gave instruction, he wanted to have that clear conscience. Now, that word there, conscience, in the Greek it just means moral awareness. That's what the conscience is, moral awareness. But think about this. Your conscience doesn't tell you right or wrong. It's the Bible. The Bible tells you right from wrong. That's why you need to study yourself to be approved, men. Ladies, that's why you need to be in the Word of God so that your conscience knows right from wrong. Otherwise, it's going to be what your teacher says. And, and in today's society with relativism, anything's right. Anything's right, anything's wrong. There's no truth. There's no absolutes until you come to God's word. We have moral awareness. So, so listen, parents in here, young people that want to have children, this is key. This is key to raising your kids. You have to teach them the scriptures. That's what's morally right and wrong. The world tells you lies. They're going to lie to you, and then you'll, your conscience won't alert you like a red flag or a warning when, when you confront something like that. So the conscience is very important. It's programmed by the right things, and then it reacts. Your conscience makes you sad, makes you feel guilty. Your conscience, um, you, you interact with your conscience. Conscience really helps you self-evaluate. That's why God has given you that. 
And again, he's given us the word. We need, to, we need to just immerse our minds with God's word and his truth so that our conscience is right and it can choose and it can discern moral right and wrongness. Again, here's the verse that I would use to prove that. In 2 Timothy, Paul says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for these things. Doctrine, that's teaching, Bible teaching, reproof. That's so... That's the confrontation. The Bible confronts you and I. It's a, it's a self-confrontation manual, really, when you read it, because you're a sinner, because you, you're to the core, you're a sinner. You need that confrontation. It reproves you so you can be right. And notice he said it's instruction and in righteousness that the man, the woman of God, is complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So in this story here, this story, Joseph's nasty brothers, their conscience are being awakened. That's what we're saying here. And it's been 20, over 20 years of guilt, 20 years of, of, of denial, 20 years of pushing it aside. Can you imagine? No wonder they were so corrupt. They kept pushing it aside. You can't do that for long. It'll, it, you'll become reprobate, the Bible says. You keep pushing the wrong, right things away. You keep doing what is right in your own eyes and what the society says around you, and you'll become numb to the truth. The Christian's really important. These, these truths are real important for us. So notice what Joseph says here in verse 19. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house. In other words, one of you will stay right here because he's approached them in the prison. They've been there three days. If you're really honest, you'll, one of you will stay here and the rest of you can go. And then you'll bring back with you your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified. And you shall not die. See, that shows you the threat. You know, you're spies. They would have died. They're spies. He says, you won't die. And they did so. Again, 20 years. These guys are trying to forget their brother. And God is now awakening their conscience at this point in time. And notice here in verse 21, my next point, the guilty conscience at work. Notice this. Then they said to one another, we are truly guilty. Wow. They're murderers. They, they lied about their brother to their dad. I mean, these guys are the bottom. But now we're truly guilty concerning our brother. See, God's brought it all back to them. God's going to make them deal with this just like God's going to make you deal with some things. God will bring into your life for your good something. Maybe, maybe you have to make restitution for something. I don't know what it might be. You know what it is. You've got to do the right thing. And now God's awakening their conscience. We truly are guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us. And we wouldn't hear, don't sell me. What am I in the pit for? Joseph saying, well, brothers, I'm in a, in a cage and I'm going to eat you. Brothers, brothers, what are you doing this for? Can you imagine? They have to live with that conscience. They knew they did the wrong thing, and it's been years. And Reuben, the oldest here, he says, did I, not, did I not speak to you saying, remember he was gone when the other guy said, let's kill him, and he came back? Reuben, he said, didn't I, didn't I tell you this? I spoke about this. Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen. So in the, they're having this dialogue now. Joseph is there with his interpreter. Remember, he's still incognito. They don't know who he is. So he's speaking Egyptian, 
the, the interpreter's going on, and these guys are talking about it. It was Joseph, and it was your fault. And, and you know, they're going through this whole thing, and they're all being, this, their conscience is being revealed here. But, verse 23, but they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. I, I love that. They're in this whole mess because of what they did to Joseph 20-some-odd years before. And I th- here's, here's an important point. Notice how quickly they associate their current trouble in prison with what happened 20 years ago. That shows you the depth of their guilt. They knew it. They knew they were guilty. And it's the first thing, in, after three days in prison, they've been talking about it. The first thing they're talking about, you know, Reuben says, if you guys wouldn't have done that, we wouldn't be here now. They, they knew what was going on. I, I, I love this story and how, it, how the conscience, very powerful. God's alerting them and waking them. Now, let me just stop for just a moment. Did you know that the U.S. Treasury has something called the Federal Conscious Fund? You ever heard of that before? I actually Googled it today. Some of you are going to do that right now. Don't do it now. You can do it later. It collects money who feel guilty about not giving the proper tax amount, not paying, you know, maybe cheating in their postage, whatever it might be. The, there were soldiers in World War I and World War II that took helmets and guns and blankets and all kinds of things they took. They were supposed to turn it in. Remember all the surplus stores? When I was growing up, surplus stores were everywhere with all these green canvas bags and all. Well, some of the soldiers took that home, and the, the ones that had a conscience, they felt so bad. They started sending, they sent 10 bucks, you know, five bucks to the, and so the, the treasury is like, what do we do with this money? It's not tax money. So they made what's called, and it's still in today, this federal conscious fund. Some people feel guilty for cheating on postage or their income tax. One man wrote this. I, I don't know if this is true, but it's funny. I cheated on my taxes and can't sleep at night. Here's a check for $100. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest of the money. <laughs> Again, these, these corrupt brothers, they're corrupt. And, and they're, they're, they're saying all this in front of Joseph. Verse 21, we are truly guilty concerning our brother for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us. and We wouldn't hear. Joseph understands every word that they're saying. And now he's overwhelmed. Everything comes rushing back into his mind. Look at verse 24. And he turned himself away from them and he wept. Everything comes to him. He misses his family. Why did my brothers do this to me? He's just over emotionally, just totally overwhelmed because a couple of reasons. His brothers cheated him, but, but I think too, my God's working. God is working right now. I think he's overwhelmed for those two reasons, that my brothers ripped me off. Yeah, but he's not mad. He weeps. He's, he's like, God, you're bringing it all back. You're, you're going to make it right. Don't you love that? Don't you love it when God, God always does that? He only does good things. And he's doing that in his life. And Joseph understands that, and he's just overwhelmed. He starts to, to weep. I love this. Verse eight. Go back to verse 18 at the end. He says, do this and live, for I fear God. See, he believes God is in this whole thing. In verse 24, then he, he turned from them again, and he talked to them. So he weeps. I, I don't know if he ran out and came back. I'm not really sure. But he was in charge. He could do whatever he wants. And he took Simeon from them, and he bound before their eyes. So he ties his hands up. He says, okay, 
You guys agree with this? I'm going to take him. He binds him up. Joseph kept Simeon as a prisoner to guarantee that they would come back. And here we have verse 25, my next point, conscience restored. This is really interesting. Then Joseph gave a command to fill all the brothers' sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack. This is interesting. He's going to put not only the grain, but unbeknownst to the brothers, he's going to give them their money. They paid. They paid for the grain that they're going to take. They had money. They're rich. So they paid the money. But Joseph puts all the money back into their sack. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys, verse 26, with grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened the sack to give his donkey feed, must have been two kind of sacks, maybe a sack for the, the animals and a sack for the people. And they put this money in the sack of the animals. And this guy, you know, uh, I, I'm sure that was Joseph's plan. They'll figure it out when they get back to Canaan. But they stop to feed the animals and they open the sack and there's this money uh, in the top of the bag there. And uh, he, he sees that. And when he opens the bag, he saw his money was there in the mouth of the sack. So these, now they're afraid again. Now they're terrified because we paid him and now the money is here. Number one, we've been accused of being spies. Now, now we're going to be accused of being thieves. So they're, they're fearful about what's going on. Verse 28, so he said to his brothers, my money has been restored and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this? Notice what they say, that God has done to us. See what's happening? Their conscience is being made aware. And now, now, not only is Joseph recognized God working sovereignly, these gnarly, nasty, immoral brothers, God's changing their heart. And he's got a long way to go. Lots is going to happen in their lives. But, but this is, there's hope for anyone. There's hope for anyone that has a seared conscience here. I, I love this truth here. They're recognizing God's work in their life. Now, in verse 29 here, they return to Jacob, turn to their dad. Then, verse 29, they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and told him all that had happened, saying. So they're going to repeat the story here. The man who was... Lord over the land spoke roughly to us, and he took us for spies. But we said to him, we're honest men, we're not spies. We're 12 brothers, sons of our father. And here's the lie, it continues, one is no more. And the youngest is with us, our father, this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, by this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother back to me so I shall know that you are not spies and that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you and you may trade in the land. So I'm, when you come back, I'm going to give your brother back and I'm going to give you opportunity to, to use your money and trade in the land. Then it happened, verse 35, as they emptied their personal sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was still in a sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. First, they say they're honest men, and, 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 and then they start remembering 20 years ago what they had done. And, and then they say to their father, yeah, we told them all these things that were sons of our father and this and that. And, and oh, yeah, we told them that one of us had died. They say they're honest, but they're, they're definitely lying here. They're repeating the same lie. And then we have 
here in these last verses, Jacob's great sorrow, verse 36. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me. Joseph is dead. He's no more. Simeon, you left him there. He's going to die there. He's no more. And now you want to take Benjamin, the son that I, I truly love. You want to take him? All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father and says, Dad, kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you. This is how serious this conversation is. Put him in my hands and I'll bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go. I'm not going to let Benjamin go with you. For his brother is dead and he's left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. I mean, you, you kind of get the picture there. Jacob is like, what did you guys do? What's wrong with you? I mean, he's, he just doesn't understand any of this he, because he believes that his son Joseph is dead. Now, Jacob, he doesn't want to live without Benjamin, you obvious here. But again, this is God's way of saving Jacob and his whole family by bringing them down during this famine to Egypt. God is sovereignly working here. Jacob doesn't get it. That's, that, that's another interesting thing about Jacob. Jacob's been a spiritual zero, right? And he proves it here. He's not trusting God. He's not looking to God. He blames everything on his sons. Very interesting. God's going to work in his life in the future as well. But now he's asked to give up his son, his beloved son. Unlike Abraham, his great-grandfather, when he was asked to give up his only, only son, Isaac, and he did. Jacob, no way. He just shows you spiritually where he's at. He's a zero. Now, in closing, there's some really interesting things that I want to throw out at you about guilt. And this is really important. There's value in godly guilt. There's real value in that. I think um, if you'll read psychological journals, and I took Psych 101 at Valley College 30 million years ago. I'm sure it's way different now than it was then. But it, it really had a lot to do with self. It was all about self and uh, self-empowerment and, and loving yourself and accepting yourself and all that stuff, which I think is so anti-biblical. It's just anti-biblical. If, you, if, if you're living for yourself, for me, myself, and I, and I have to have a good self-esteem, and that's so unbiblical. We're to be humble. We're to see ourselves as nothing in the Bible. And when we do that, it's Christ in me, the hope of glory, right? But, but psychology and all that stuff. But guilt, guilt is really important. Guilt is not necessarily an enemy for any of us. But it is a red flag. It is a warning. And when programmed correctly, guilt awakens us to immorality. It awakens us to problems. It keeps us out of danger. It's kind of like pain. When I have pain in my eye, it's, it's like... Uh, it's just telling me I have something in my eye, right? When you have a pain in your back, you strain your back. When you have a pain in your chest, maybe you have a problem here, the arteries, I don't know. Pain is a really good thing, right? It warns you of something going on. Just don't be a pain in the neck, okay? Some of you guys don't be a pain in the neck. But pain is a good thing. Pain helps nurses and doctors diagnose what, what's going on with you. But Joseph's brothers... They came to understand that when they had done something wrong, 
And it was guilt. It was guilt. It was this pain that brought them. They ignored it. They didn't let it do anything to them. But now they're starting to. They're starting to allow that to happen. God is working in there. Before, they were blind to their problem. But now, in prison, in pain, and they didn't know if they were going to die. They're, they're accused of being spies. The truth started to pop out. You know, we shouldn't have done what we did. Guilt. They had guilt. And that was, that was a good thing. Guilt alerts us to problems that need to be addressed. Let me give you one great example here as we close in the Gospel of John. It's Peter. Peter, he stands with Jesus. Jesus is praying. Jesus is saying, I, 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 I'm going to go to the cross and I, I'm going to be killed. No, you're not. I, I would never let that happen. And when the temple guards come, remember, Peter cuts one of their ear off, ears off. I, I'll fight to the death. I'll die with you. And remember Jesus. I, I think Jesus looked down when he said, Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows, Peter. I, I'm sure Peter was shocked at that. I, I'm not going to deny you. Matthew 26 Here's the story, and when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him, that's Peter, and he says, those, those are the same ones. This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth, but again, he denied with an oath. I don't even know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up to Peter. You're one of them. I mean, he talked like a Galilean. He's acted like one. He's dressed like one. You know, he must be one of them. And this is what Matthew says that the other Gospels don't. That's why I chose this one. Peter began to curse and swear. Blankety, blankety, blank. I don't even know blankety. I mean, he was just, that's what the Scripture says. That's how much he denied the Lord that a day earlier he said, I'll fight for you. I'll never deny you. If anyone would have a guilty conscience, wouldn't it be Peter? Can you imagine the guilt that he had when he heard that rooster crow. Oh, I, I mean, I think about that all the time. Peter, Peter. He must have felt just the worst. I mean, really, he denied the Lord. Someone said this about guilt. Guilt is the nerve ending of the heart. It yanks us back when we are too near to the fire. Guilt. Guilt is a good thing. When it's programmed, when you take God's word and you program your mind and your heart, guilt is a really good thing. It'll help you. Peter was crushed with the weight of guilt. But after the resurrection, you know the story. Jesus called out to them. They're fishing. He's on the shoreline. This is a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. Had a body. Wasn't a ghost. He wasn't see-through. He had a body. Built a fire on shore. Guys, catch anything? Come on in and have something to eat. Peter's like, he puts his jacket on. It's the Lord, and he jumps in and swims to shore. I love that. And then Jesus has a private conversation with, with Peter because Jesus knows the guilt that he's faced. And you know what? Jesus knows your guilt. Whatever it is, he knows your guilt. And he'll do the same thing he did with Peter, with you and with me. He says, Peter, do you love me? Oh, Lord, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you really love me? Lord, you know I love you. Why are you, why are you asking me over and over? Because 
the Lord wanted him to understand, I've forgiven you, I forgave you, I forgave you for all those times and all those words and all that cursing and your denial. Isn't that beautiful? That's how God treats you and I as believers. Oh, thank God for that. I'm so grateful that God treats me that way. Hey, listen, I'm guilty. You're guilty. There's things that we're guilty of. But when we humble ourselves before the Lord, he restores us. Tonight, if you're suffering from a guilty conscience, two scriptures I want to give you tonight. 1 John 1, 9, you know it. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from unrighteousness. Listen, if you're guilty, if the Holy Spirit's on your case right now, and I hope he is, he's on my case today. I was struggling with something today all day long, and I just over and over, I just kept quoting this verse, quoting this verse, oh, Lord, forgive me. This is how you deal with it. If you're at odds with, with a brother or sister in Christ, if if you've got a problem with somebody on the other side of the room or somebody that you fellowship with on Sunday, James 5.16, here's another great verse. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be, what? Healed. There are many verses like that. God wants you to deliver. He wants to deliver all of us from, from guilt. Guilt's a powerful thing. The power of a guilty conscience revealed right here in the pages of scripture. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the word tonight. I thank you for the story, for its truth, and for the application of it. Lord, I pray for any here that, that suffer from a guilty conscience. Lord, that they would just confess to you, that they would confess to one another. And Lord, that, that we would find ourselves in the same place Peter did with your wonderful, gracious, kind, and loving Mercy, you come to us with over and over. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We love you and we thank you. And I, I so thank you for this story, for this book of Genesis as we study. Thank you for the truth it reveals. May you bless your people, bless their hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together.